So we're glad to see all of you here today. Trying to get this set right so you get a little bit of decency. Um, yeah, lots of light around here. Let me grab this. Now the aura. Can't do anything about that one. Sorry about that. Um, just a couple of announcements before we begin the sermon. One is that um, yesterday we had over 70 people show up and in West Bend at a busy intersection. West Bend is just north of Milwaukee to speak up for the preborn in spite of the order by the governor to stay in our homes. Um, because it's important for people to understand that an order by the governor does not suspend or supersede our state constitution. Our state constitution is organic law in our state. It is above any magistrate and any order a magistrate gives. It is above any law in our state. And that's important for you to understand. So, um, great. <laughs> so, so just so people know, I forgot the announcements. Restroom there, restroom upstairs. Kids make a bunch of noise. Just take them in the bedroom over here because the mic picks up everything, unfortunately, including this creaking chair, which I meant to switch out. Um, so our state constitution, and of course, everything is subject to the law of God, you know, including our state constitution. But our state constitution makes it clear right at the very near the very beginning that the right of the people to assemble and address grievances to their government, here's what it says, quote, shall never be abridged, never be abridged, unquote. And so you're able to go out <laughs> and speak up for Christ and for your preborn neighbor. And this coming Friday, there's going to be a huge protest at the Capitol, and I encourage you to go to it. At 1 p.m. in Madison at the Capitol building, there will be tons of people gathering, thousands, in order to address the tyrant, Evers, to address this governor who's lost his mind and is, clearly has an agenda politically to further empower the state and further subjugate the people. And this isn't just a state agenda. It's a national agenda. And it's not just the national agenda. It's a global agenda. And we have much about all this. Um, if you go to my Facebook wall, Matt Truella, I got tons of stuff I've been posting for weeks. Um, you can also go to defytyrants.com. We have stuff there because you need to understand what's going on. This is a major battle between good and evil. And you need to be a part of it as, as a follower of Christ and declare truth to people regarding the governance of civil government you know, and the magistrates, and also pointing men to Christ, because we're a nation that's forgotten God, and we need to understand how important it is to point men to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. We must do that. When we were out there yesterday, and over 70 people, you know, sometimes you wonder if people even care. Do they even say anything? Overwhelming support by the cars going by. People were, um, you could tell people were, like, glad just to see people outside. And um, not going along with all the COVID-19 Kool-Aid, you know, of fear, hysteria, and tyranny. And then the Washington County nosy neighbors posted that we were out there, and there were well over 300 comments, over 200 reactions, giving opportunity for other people to contend with these people who are COVID-19 crazy, who are pro-abortion. And um, so it gives opportunity to point men to Christ to talk about his word, his law, the things of him with people. 
when we go out into the public realm and um, speak of his word and his rule. So anyways, that'll be this coming Friday for this gathering in Madison. I want to greatly encourage you uh, to be a part of that and uh, understand you're on solid ground. <laughs> Most of us wouldn't care if we were or not anyway. <laughs> We'd still show up in Madison. But even according to our own constitution, we're on solid ground to go out and defy a tyrant, which is Tony Evers and his little minions of leftist Marxist insane people. <laughs> so anyway, I encourage you to go out. May we see some of them even one to Christ and become great trophies in Christ's kingdom. Amen. So I'm done with COVID-19. I preached three sermons on it since this all began. I may come back to it depending on what develops in the days ahead. I can tell you one thing I've learned about wicked people over my lifetime. They don't go away. <laughs> their agenda's not done, even though the numbers haven't materialized like they said they would. And they're like not talking about it much anymore. Talking about how it's going to be way less than what they originally said. They're still going forward with their agenda of global dominance over every person's life, reestablishing the global economy, um, vaccinating everyone under force of law. This is what they're about. They're still going forward with it. So, yeah, I don't even know how I got it back on that again. <laughs> but anyhow, um, old age. So I'm going back to Acts, which we've been away from for like six weeks now. I, we preach through a book at a time here at Mercy Seat. This is like our 42nd book we're preaching through. I go verse by verse. And today we're going to go through Acts chapter 20 and um, see what the Lord has there for us. Amen. Now, I was actually going to do this sermon in two parts, the first half of the sermon and then the second half of the sermon. And I was putting this off in part also because I wanted to be back at the conference center we rent for church, the Zufari Conference Center because then I could use the PowerPoint and the big screen and show you all of Paul's movements. Well, I can't do that. So I'm just going to go and do this in one sermon. We'll go through the first half of the chapter much quicker than I had planned. And um, we'll get through the meeting with the Ephesian elders. So the title of the sermon is Eutychus and the Ephesian elders, Acts chapter 20. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks. We give praise to you for this time that we have here together. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word, that you would use it for good in the hearts and lives of men. We rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, for all your goodness to us. And we ask and pray that you use what's spoken here today. Help me to set it forth. And mostly, O oh Lord, use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to build up your kingdom in the hearts and minds of the hearers. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in verse 1, and it says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So it's been a little while. What was the uproar? It was the uproar in Ephesus. That had just ended. Remember, it was in chapter 19. You can read that later if you want to refresh your memory. And um, it actually included the interposition of a magistrate who interposed on behalf of the disciples, on behalf of the Christians, against an angry mob who was ready to rip them to shreds. That is what he's, what Luke is referring to here when he writes, because Luke wrote the book of Acts, when he writes after the uproar had ceased. How about the uproar in Ephesus? Paul calls the disciples to himself, embraces them, departs to go to Macedonia, which is north and across some water. And it says, now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them, verse two, with many words, he came to Greece. Now he's traveled back south. Macedonia is north of Greece. And it says he stayed there three months. 
some scholars believe that during that three months, he may have written the epistle to the Romans during that winter of 57 to 58 AD. So it says, and when, verse 3, the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria. Okay, that's a long travel. He wanted to get to Syria. It's north of Jerusalem. It's believed that he wanted to make it to the Passover and be in Jerusalem for the Passover. We know he had this collection from the Gentiles at this time um, that was put together to bring to the church in Jerusalem. So he probably wanted to bring it there at that time. But he finds out that there's this plot to kill him. The disciples find out there's this plot to kill him. So instead of sailing to Syria, he decides to return through Macedonia, much longer direction by foot. And he ends up not making it to the Passover. He ends up making it, trying to make it to Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. Okay. And it says in verse four, in Sopater of Berea, why don't, these are Christian men. Why doesn't anybody ever name their kids Sopater? You know what I mean? So you ever notice there's some biblical names people pick and use, and there's other biblical names that just fall to the wayside. Like nobody uses Eutychus. His only claim to fame is falling out of a window. You know, so maybe that's why. But Sapater, yeah, nobody uses that. Also, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Most of those people don't, people don't use those names except Timothy, right? They just don't use those names. So anyways, maybe you want to start a trend. <laughs> so... <laughs> goes on here in verse 5 and says, These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. So they end up going back across the water north of Ephesus again, is where they're at now, and they're in Troas. And here's this story about this young man named Eutychus. It says in verse 7, Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, okay, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So here they're meeting on the first day of the week. This is the first historical example, many of which we have from church history, that Christians did not meet on the Sabbath. They did not meet on Saturday. They met on the first day of the week, Sunday, because that was the day that the Lord was raised from the dead. Amen. So here's our first historical reference to that historical fact. And you might be thinking, wow, what a long church service. I mean, we start at what, 10 a.m.? A lot of churches start at 11 a.m. Paul's still speaking all the way to midnight. Well, it wasn't like that. You have to understand, Saturday was the day most of them had off. They worked on Sunday. In fact, many of these regions didn't even have a day off at that time. And it may have been the case in Troas. So they worked during the day and they met in the evening for church service. Understand? They met in the evening for church service. So that is why it's midnight and he's still speaking. If he started at seven, yeah. they We know historically they spoke much longer than we speak now at church services. They even did 200 years ago. 300 years ago, sometimes preachers would preach for three hours. That was very common. Now it's like, oh, man, if you go more than 20 minutes, oh, some people are losing their marbles, you know. 
And I get it because a lot of what these guys got to say, them talking about the ministers, is so boring. Who would want to go more than 20 minutes? But if you have something worthwhile to say, an hour, 45 minutes goes by like a flash. So anyhow, um, some people try to tell you, you know, we should meet on Saturday, not on Sunday. No, we've met on Sunday. It's the history of the church. Some people say it's the Roman Catholics who made us meet on Sunday when Constantine took over. The Roman Catholics didn't even have this great power that certain people teach that like when Constantine came in, everything went down the tubes. Everything was awful. And no, we see all the way into the fifth and sixth century where the bishops from the different regions are still fighting it out, saying we don't care what the Roman bishop has to say. This is what things are like here where we're at. So they did not have this all-encompassing power till you got to the 600s and then the 700s where they secured it. And of course, they corrupted themselves and became an awful organization that needed reformation, which took place in the 1500s. Amen? So anyways, it's Sunday, the first day of the week. It's late. Eutychus probably worked hard all day. He's sitting in a windowsill listening to Paul. Paul's been speaking for several hours. Falling asleep and falling out of a window is something that would, yeah, happen, right? So it says in verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room. That was probably helping lull him to sleep. Ever been in a room full of candles? You know, it's like. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. Yeah, he had worked hard all day. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Okay, and we know from the Greek here, yeah, he was dead. <laughs> he was dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, Paul had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. So Paul knew he's just like, my time with the Tro Troas people <laughs> is limited. They stay up all night. They're all happy to stay up all night. We have Paul here. He's doing some great teaching. And, yeah, the old people probably nodded off, and the young people are all like, you know, little energizer bunnies, you know, taking it all in, right? Now, notice in verse 7 it says to break bread. There. That is referring to communion. And we know that that's referring to communion because of, again, the Greek that is used there. If I can find it, it's Classi Arten, which refers to the Lord's table. In verse 11, it's talking about an actual meal where they just eat and hang out, have fellowship. Now, when he had come up, it had had broken bread and eaten, verse 11. The Greek there is Klasas Tan Arten. And so that's talking about, yeah, having a meal, having a time of fellowship. It went all the way until the early morning hours. It says in verse 12, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Amen. Then we, notice it says we, Luke is with Paul again at this time. That's why we is being used. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assus. They're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assus, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tragilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, which I don't have my PowerPoint. I can't show you all these movements. But suffice it to say, Paul continues to move south 
on the coastal border of Asia Minor towards Ephesus. So he's left Troas. He's headed south with all those cities I just mentioned, headed towards Ephesus. And it says in verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the day of Passover. So why would Paul pass up Ephesus? A couple things. There may have been trouble there from the authorities, and he wanted to bypass getting bogged down there. A more likely scenario is he didn't want to have happen to him when he wants to get to Jerusalem and make it there for Pentecost, what happened to him in Troas, where he gets bogged down with the believers. You know how it is you get around believers? He ended up spending seven days there. He couldn't get away. Everybody wants to talk to him. Have you ever been at a gathering where it's like, you know, people just keep coming up to you, and you don't really get to leave when you wanted to leave? You know, like two hours later, you finally go. It's like sometimes when you're a pastor leaving church on Sunday morning, you experience that in other places. So he's just like, I'm not going there because I know I'll end up missing Pentecost. So I'm going to meet down here at that Miletus spot and just call for the elders of Ephesus to come down. And it was about a 30-mile walk, if I remember right, from Ephesus down to Miletus. So it was a little bit of a trek. So it probably took them two days to get there based on what scholars say and what all goes on there, even three days for them to get over there. He's waiting for them. And it says in verse 18, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. And this is important. Notice the first thing that Paul appeals to for them to listen to him. He appeals to how he's conducted and governed his life. That's the first thing he appeals to, how he's lived his life. He says, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, what he had to say, how he conducted his life, what was important to him, the affairs that he did in his daily life, that spoke volumes to them. And that's what I want to tell you. How we live matters. How we live speaks volumes to people. How we live, how we conduct ourselves speaks volumes to people. We are not to be Christian in word only. We are to be Christian in deeds, in character. People may not even like you, but when they see how you remain married, how you actually have children, many of them even, and raise them proper, so they love the Lord and grow up and fend for themselves, work to provide for their families. When you continue to minister on the streets for the preborn and for righteousness, and you don't go away <laughs> for years and years and decades, you keep on, that speaks volumes to people about who you are as a person, about whether you're to be listened to or to be taken serious, or your thoughts are worthy of hearing. Paul appeals to his own person how he has conducted his life for why they should listen to him. Listen to me, young people. That's something you don't get in a day or two. It's something you don't get in a week or two or even a year or two. It's something that takes a lifetime to build. It takes years upon years, decades upon decades to build that kind of reputation amongst people. 
to build that kind of moral authority, that kind of trust and respect. Remember that how you live matters, not just in the here and now, for years from now, how people will view you. It matters. How we live has consequences, whether for good or for bad. It has consequences for our own life. It has consequences for our family. It has consequences for the church which we belong to. It has consequences for the body of Christ at large. It has consequences for the community you live in. It has consequences for the nation you live in, how you live your life. Everybody in this culture, all the wicked people, why you think it's all about me, myself, and I, like you're an island under yourself. It's a lie. How you conduct your life impacts so many other lives, whether for good or for bad. So Paul appeals, the very first thing he appeals to is how he's lived his life. And it says in verse 19, he says, Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Okay, so here he says that he's serving the Lord with all humility. And here's what I've learned in my life. The longer you live for him, the more humble you become. Being clothed with humility becomes a massively important thing to your life. You see humility for the great virtue that it is. The longer you live, the more life experience you've had. Suffering is part of the Christian life. And notice that what is what Paul points to immediately here. The suffering he had at the hands of the Jews. Suffering produces within our lives, if we allow God to use it for good in us, produces within our lives humility, which is a gem of a virtue, a great thing which is needed in the body of Christ. I'm not talking about being milquetoast, like a minister who puts on, look how gentle I am, you know, and all their nonsense, you know, where they try to wear a skirt and act dopey and everyone swoons, oh, my minister's so gentle. You know, no, I'm talking about true humility where you fear God, not man, and you live for him in the earth. As you do that and you suffer living for him, as Paul did, it produces within you true humility, not this false humility, not this fake feigned humility that's so prevalent within American Christianity. True humility is is seen within your life. That is what produces humility, suffering. John Wesley once said, true humility is a kind of self-annihilation, unquote. Okay, the kids are getting a little too crazy here. They're grabbing them, so they're walking that way and heading for a different room. Those are my granddaughters, my little gems, I call them, my twins. So, True humility is a kind of self-annihilation, unquote, Wesley said. In other words, he increases and you decrease. And that's a beautiful thing to learn as your life goes on. He increases, you decrease. As Paul goes on to say, with many tears and trials, much happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. With many tears and trials, much happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Paul talks about tears again in verse 31. Look at there. What's the context, starting in verse 29? It's the only other place in this address to the Ephesian elders where he talks about tears, where he's talking about suffering. Suffering produces tears. And in the context there, when he brings up tears again, he says, For I know this, 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's talking about false teachers, these phony ministers. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. This is another thing that produces humility within you. When you see brothers and sisters get taken away by false people, by dopes, it's and then they rend you, and then they rend the truth. That is a suffering. It's heart-wrenching when you see that take place. But the goodness of it is it builds within us humility. We get a better perspective of ourselves, and we get a better perspective of our fellow man when we suffer these things. Let me go on here. It's painful to watch, makes you more dependent upon him. It humbles you. It clothes you with humility. Verse 20 goes on and says, how I kept back nothing. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. Paul kept back nothing that was helpful. In other words, Paul was not a taker. He was a giver. Paul was not a taker. He was a giver. He wasn't a high-maintenance person who needed to be cuckooed and cared for every second. Okay, and there are weak people like that who need that from us. But it's way overdone. In American Christianity, you need to help people grow up and to stand firm in the faith. I said the minister likes to keep them weak and pet their little wool because they're more controllable that way in their hands. And that's why, I, you know, a lot of these ministers love what the state's doing and we should all obey the state because they want everybody to obey them. They run their churches like little fiefdoms. You know, it's, it's, it's wrong. When men truly know Christ, it brings freedom. When men truly know Christ, it unenslaves them, brings them liberty. They understand the goodness of Christ and freeing them from sin. They understand that he is their Lord that the magistrates have a mere part in what he's created in the earth, namely civil government, and that their role and function has limits. And they don't just bow down and do whatever they say. When they're doing things that are wrong, they need to be rebuked and reproached for it. When they're doing things against the law of God, they need to be outright disobeyed over it. And we've talked about this even regarding the lesser magistrates, and right now it's exciting to see the lesser magistrates taking a stand, and we're able to teach the doctrine of the lesser magistrate in real time and space right now because around this country, including here in Wisconsin, lesser magistrates are defying the tyrants, the governors who are acting tyrannically. We saw it in Maine, and now we just saw it two days ago here in Wisconsin with, with the sheriff from Racine. And Racine has a great heritage about this stuff, by the way. You may recall when our whole state defied the U.S. Supreme Court and the entire U.S. federal government over the Federal Fugitive Slave Act back in the 1850s. Remember, it was the sheriff of Racine who arrested federal marshals trying to arrest and take captive the runaway slave. Remember that? And it was the sheriff who, who came up by boat with 120 men and marched on the jail and 5,000 people re-rallied and gathered. And then the slave was broken out of jail. And so here we have the Racine Sheriff all this time later saying, no, the Constitution of our state is not superseded. The U.S. Constitution is not superseded. Neither of them are subverted by the act 
of Governor Evers by his little order. They take precedent over it. You can still meet. You can, in fact, you must. Tyrants want you to stay home, locked in your house over some virus and peering through your drapes and narking on your neighbors. That's what leftists and Marxists want you to do. It's insane. Christ does not want us to do that. He does not. He's, it says in First Corinthians, do not become the slaves of men. You don't enslave yourself. You stay free. You appoint men to Christ. That's the goodness. One of the, one of the goodnesses Christianity brings to nations, what I just explained to you. So Paul was a giver. He was not a taker. He was a hard worker. Look what he says in verses 32. Uh, pardon me, verse 33 through 35. Verse 33 through 35, still talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Why did he have to say that? Because even in his day, there were already ministers running around coveting people's gold, silver, and apparel. It's nothing new. They're still around today in droves. (laughs) Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. He was a tent maker. And yes, people did give him love offerings, did help him out. But often it was his own hands working as a tent maker that provided for his ability to do these missionary journeys. That's what he's referring to when he says, you yourselves know that these hands are provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. Talking about taking up offerings, helping people out. He even put into the offering that was going to be taken to Jerusalem to help out the believers there that were having a famine at that time. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul was a hard worker. He did not covet men's silver and gold and apparel. Most ministers in our day are not hard workers. <laughs> I can assure you of that. I'm a churchman, I know. They are not hard workers. Many of them do covet the things and the material possessions they can get. They are soft men. Overwhelmingly, God always has those who are true to him. And there's many good ministers. But the majority, the vast majority, are prostitutes, whores, and hirelings here in America. And we're reaping the whirlwind for their traitorism and treachery to Christ. So most of them are soft men, and their despicable effeminacy is cloaked in Christian language. That's what sickens me most of all, how they hide their falseness to Christ, how they hide their effeminacy by cloaking what they are and do in Christian language. It's a great evil. They say soft things to people because they want to be liked. That's what they want. They love the praises of men more than they love doing right by Christ in the earth. So Paul was a hard worker. He makes that clear to them. He was a giver, not a taker. And it goes on here in verse 22 and says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Verse 23, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Okay, so... Here's a news flash for modern day American Christianity. Part of Christianity is suffering. <laughs> so some of you are suffering right now in a small way, sitting on some of these hard steps and hard benches we have set up here. Suffering is part of Christianity. It builds good character in our lives if we allow it, 
the Lord to use it for good in our lives. Don't become bitter or don't shrink back from the faith because of it. God uses it for good in our lives. So Paul's expecting suffering. Verse 24, but none of these things move me. Do you hear that? None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Why? Because our life is to be lived in service to him who died in our stead, namely Jesus. We should have been put to death for our sins. He died in our place so that through him we can have faith in him. We can have forgiveness of our sins, right standing with the Father. So our lives are not dear to us. What's dear to us is him and his kingdom in the earth. That's what's dear to us. We're not like, do you notice all these atheists since this virus came around, how they're all worried? You don't see the sodomites out parading in the streets anymore, do you? <laughs> you know? All the atheists, all the wicked people are in their houses cowering, peering through their drapes. Oh, the virus. And they're attacking everybody on Facebook who dares walk outside. So I'm hoping everybody dies who's been out there. Now we'll all have to stay in our houses longer because of these guys going out and actually defending freedom. You know, little babies, they're hypocrites. They want to spit in God's face. He doesn't exist. You know, and then look at him now when this so-called virus of doom comes. They're all running, hiding, wanting to protect their little pathetic life. Whereas the Christian gets a bigger picture of that, at least some of them do, and realize, no, my life is in Christ's hands. Amen? If I die, I die. <laughs> it's better to be with the Lord than to be here anyway. If I don't die, I continue to serve. It's a win-win for us. Okay? And our lives are in his hands. You have to understand that. You have to live that way. I always tell people, if God wants me dead, I'll be dead no matter how hard I hide. If he, if he doesn't want me dead, it doesn't matter how crazy people want to kill me. I'll still be alive. That is in his hands. Amen. He said, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And that's important. Always maintain joy. Don't get beaten down by the oppressions of men. Maintain the joy while you decry the oppressions of men. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Here he gets to the punchline. This is it. I'm not going to see you anymore. Can you imagine when they heard this? Like, what? What are you saying, Paul? And he goes on and he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Now, when I was a young Christian, I used to believe that what that meant was every person I passed during the day, I had to either give them a track or stop and talk to them about Jesus. And then I realized it's an impossibility. <laughs> if you want to maintain a job, put food on your family's table, and all that kind of, you can't do it. You got to work. And I learned that being free of the, what does he say here? <laughs> I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Being innocent of the blood of all men isn't talking about that. What it's talking about is, again, how we live our lives and how we make the whole counsel of God known to men. That it's what our life is about. That wherever we are, what little sphere of influence he gives us in the lives of men, we used it to his glory. We pointed men to his salvation and to his rule. Amen? Amen. That's what makes us innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We must declare the whole counsel of God. 
It's part of what makes us innocent of the blood of all men. And that doesn't mean you have to tell every last person that you meet along your day or every last person on the planet or anything like that. It means talking about your influence, the sphere of influence you have, people you know, and places you go, those types of things. Therefore, take heed, verse 28, to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Remember, overseers, he's speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, which he purchased with his own blood. Okay. Um, I had this other little thought here. Nobody become like Eutychus on me here. I had this other little thought here about verse 27 before I talk about the blood of Christ. Um, most ministers don't teach the whole counsel of God. They've reduced it to this little sliver. You know, just how you get saved. That's it. And they, they conduct their old church services around that. And then they have their Bible studies, which everyone comes to over the decades, but you never really act upon them or you never really apply them, apply the word of God to your life. You just go through this moose club thing. So they have this same screed they go through year after year, decade after decade. And it's so wrong because the truth is God's law and word speaks to all matters of life. His word speaks to all matters of our life and all matters of life. And wherever we see his rule being impugned by men, his word and law being impugned by men, that should bother us. And we should want to act to see his rule brought to bear in that area of life or in that area of our life. Amen. It's extremely important. Most ministers say, do not do that. So because they neglect to do that, most people get their view of life through the school system, which is pagan, or through the media, which is pagan, they don't get it from Scripture. Okay, so verse 28, he talks about how we've been bought with the blood of Jesus. This is the truth of Scripture. We have been bought with the blood of Jesus. And if you don't understand that, you will never be free. You will never experience the liberty that the Scriptures speak about in Christ. You won't. You will always be bound by your sin or by your do-gooderism or your thinking that good works makes me right with God. They do not. The only thing that makes us right with God is Jesus plus nothing. Our faith in him alone brings us redemption. We don't do good works to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do good works because we have obtained his acceptance. Once you know him through faith, good works become evident in your life. That's the truth. No, you don't continue to live like a dope and a pig and a pagan and a sinner after you come to know Christ. You change and you live according to his rule. Understand? Extremely important. In American Christianity, it's like, oh, yeah, you can, you're can. only saved through faith, so you just live like a devil. And I've met people out on the streets smoking dope, drunk, whoremongering around, all their usual stuff. But I'm going to heaven because I prayed that sinner's prayer. And they're deceived, and it's a lie. If your saving faith in Christ doesn't result in a changed life, your so-called faith is suspect, plain and simple. So we're saved through faith in Christ alone. But as the Reformers said, saving faith is never alone. And what they meant by that is it results in a changed life. Very important. So the blood of Jesus, you better get that down. Get your strong concordance. Look how many times the blood of Jesus is spoken about. 
I was a Christian for three years and I still had it all monked up in my mind where I was thinking, well, it's through faith in Jesus plus what I do that gives me right saying the first six months I was I knew it was Jesus only that I could get to the father because I was such a dog prior to coming to know Christ. I knew that was that's my only hope <laughs> It's Jesus. Right. But after about six months, you start getting good in your life. You know, it changes you. Behavior changes your thinking. And I started getting everything mixed up. And I'd kneel down before the Lord and I'd say, Father, I come before you through faith in Jesus. I'd say that with my lips. But in the back of my mind, I'm sitting there thinking about how good I have or have not been living my life. And if I was living it good, then I felt like God let me in and I could meet with him. And if I hadn't done that great, then I felt like, oh, man, God can't meet with me. I have to have a pity party, feel blue for three days, not do any ministry, not think about, you know, talk to anyone about Jesus all these kind of, like a form of penance, <laughs> you know, Protestant penance is what I called it, because it's like an insanity. Listen, if you sin, you need to confess it, and the scriptures teach he's faithful and just to forgive you of it. That's the only way you get forgiveness of your sins, not by feeling blue for three days, and trying to add to the finished work of Christ. You confess your sin, you get up and you walk, and you continue to follow Christ. Amen. So here I was for three years, and I was in this thing because I wasn't basing my acceptance with God through faith in Jesus alone because of the blood which he shed when he died at Calvary. I was basing it on faith in Jesus plus my goodness. And when you read Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about that. And he says it's a curse. Once you try to relate with God on the basis of law, it's a curse. And so I found myself under this curse, this struggle, this feeling bad all the time, and I decided to fast and pray till I understood this thing properly. And I was on the third day of my fast, and it was in the evening, and Claire was already in bed, and I had read a number of things trying to help me understand these things, and all of them were wrong. And then all of a sudden, I read this verse in Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I always took his righteousness as Matt trying to be holy, Matt trying to be good, Matt trying to be this great Christian guy. Immediately, God brought a scripture to my mind about Jesus's blood. And it's found in Romans. Turn there. Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three, verse 25. Verse 24, it says, um, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then look what it says in verse 25 of Jesus. It says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. And I immediately saw this is his righteousness. It's Jesus and him crucified. And the scriptures say it that plainly. Christ, our righteousness. That is what gives me right standing with God, is Jesus and the blood which he shed on Calvary. It's not about me. It was liberating. I shook Claire and woke her up. <laughs> I said, I understand. I'm set free. Do you know that Hudson Taylor was a great missionary to China, was on the mission field for 20 years before he had this revelation of the awesomeness of the, that's, there's a reason the writer of the Hebrews calls it a great salvation. You have to understand how awesome it is. We deserve to die. God sent his son as a propitiation to die in our place, as a substitute, as a mercy seat, to die in our place so that if we believe in him, God will forgive us of our sin, and we can actually meet with God himself. That's a great salvation. 
So the blood of Christ is talked about over and over again. I had a bunch of verses, but the kids are getting a little anxious. Here's just a few. And look them up in your spare time. Besides Romans 3.25, there's Romans 5.9. Romans 5.9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You understand that we're saved not just from our sins, but we're saved from the just wrath of God also through Christ. We deserve death for the sins which we committed. But God in his mercy will forgive us if we believe in Jesus. Another verse is Ephesians 7.1. Uh, pardon me, 7.1. doesn't have that many chapters. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. So we have redemption and forgiveness of sins through his blood. Chapter 2, verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, talking about us Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's formed one man made up of Jew and Gentile. We're all in Jesus. Amen. Because of his shed blood, we have right standing with him. And of course, there's First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, talking about we weren't saved with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with his precious blood. Amen. The blood which he shed when he died on the cross is efficacious to us for redemption, for right standing with God, for forgiveness of sins. This is a great salvation. Amen. So, Paul, uh, Luke finishes up here in chapter 20, after verse 28, and he talks about these wolves that will come in, which we've already discussed, and that's one of the duties of the elders is to protect the flock from these wolves as much as possible. Doesn't always work. Paul himself already knew that with many of the Corinthians and what they did there. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, verse 32, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then he talks about how he was worked, how he coveted no man's silver or gold, which we already looked at. And verse 36 says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Kneeling is proper. It is biblical. They knelt down. They prayed right there by the coastline. It says in verse 37, then they all wept freely. It's okay to cry, men. <laughs> it's okay to, to weep. There's nothing more s- somber or sobering than when loved ones, you know you're not going to see them. You've done ministry together or their family or whatever, and you have to say goodbye, and you know you're not going to see them again. These people were just told, well, you'll never see me again. They are weeping freely, and they fall on Paul's neck, and they kiss him. It's like an Eastern thing. <laughs> Almost over in the West, you start kissing us, we're okay. <laughs> you know, so say, no, uh, we have some German blood in us. <laughs> we could, uh, we're not going along with that. Um, so what they're doing is expressing their love for each other. Amen. True love. And um, what a scene that must have been. It says, sorrowing most of all. For the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. I'm sure they stood on the shore and waved to him until the ship was out of sight. Broken in heart. Broken in heart. There goes a great brother. 
They know suffering awaits him and they won't see him anymore. But that's a goodness in itself too. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word and we ask that you would use it for good in our hearts and minds, that we would be faithful to you in the days ahead, that our lives, short as they are, would count to the glory of your name, O God. And Lord, may we be sure to also not only glorify you, but also to enjoy you. May we take time in your word alone as individuals, but also as families. May each man here be a priest to his home, instructing his wife and his children from the word of God, sitting together, discussing the things of you, O Lord. Lord, I ask and pray that we would be faithful and true to you in the days ahead. We see evil afoot. We see darkness abounding. May we always fear you. May we always have fealty to you first and not fear man, O God. May we hate evil, even as your word declares, O Lord, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Because we see how it impugns your law and word, O God. We see how it spits in your face. And we see how it destroys our fellow man's lives. We should hate it. Not make excuses for it. Not just say, I expect sinners to act like sinners. But to be faithful and true to you, O God, and declare the truth of your word, calling men to repentance of sin and faith in your son. Make us bold in you by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, O God, for your goodness to us. We ask and pray you bless each home in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So I'm going to end the live stream. God bless you all out there at the different homes. Mercy Seat's meeting at several homes. And for anybody else who... Just joined in from their house. God bless you.